Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 127 of Garden DC, the podcast about mid-Atlantic gardening. We talk with Brent Heath of Brent and Becky's Bulbs, all about lesser-known bulbs. The plant profile is on garlic, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. Dr. Alan Armitage shares the last word on Joe Pieweed. He's also offering a discount for free domestic shipping starting on November 7th, 2022 at net. Enter code last word at checkout. This episode, we're joined by Brent Heath. He is co-owner of Brent and Becky's Bulbs in Tidewater, Virginia. Welcome, Brent. Uh, thank you, Kathy. Happy to be with you. Great to have you. So previously on the Garden DC podcast, way back episode 27, we talked with Jay Hutchins of Brent and Becky Bulbs all about gardening with bulbs and some of the things you would take into account with starting a bulb garden and all those great bulb tips that he shared. So this episode, we're going to dive even deeper into bulbs and we're going to talk about specialty bulbs. Good. And Brent, before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about your family business and your background in it, in it. And I love the cover tag, which is Brent and Becky's family owned and operated since 1900. That puts you well over a century mark at this point. It does indeed. And my grandfather, a damn Yankee, by the way, that means he came south and was accepted, brought <laughs> modern daffodils to our community. And our community became famous for picking the flowers to be shipped to, to the flower markets. And that he started in 1900, but he took off on, a, on an industry that had begun by some lady, local ladies who were picking the little wild daffodils from France, a little pseudo-narcissus, um, and that had been brought over by their great-grandmas, sewed into the hems of their skirts on the sailing voyage over the Atlantic. As they couldn't bring a green plant, they could bring a dormant bulb, and you gals think differently than we guys. So anyhow, my grandfather began, brought modern daffodil hybrids here, and then my parents took it on, and at one point had 1,500 varieties of daffodils in their mail-order catalog. Wow. And then I bought it from my mother in 1972. And fortunately for me, I married well. I married uh, one of my, we'd both had a starter marriage. I married one of, uh, well, Becky was teaching one of my children. And she came with two children. And fortunately for us, one of them was Jay. And then Jay married well. He married Denise. And so we're blessed to have a, a wonderful business that positively impacts other people's minds and moods. And I'm particularly blessed in that Becky, much more organized than I, runs the business. It didn't take me long to realize I didn't need to be in charge. 
that Jay manages uh, the, he's our general manager. Denise manages our retail, our shop, our walk-in shop, and then uh, organizes events in Becky's eight-acre teaching garden, an idea garden, and conference room that seats 100. She organizes events here. And we do have many events here now as well. So, I'm blessed. I get to play with people and plants. I answer the horticultural questions that come in. They send them to my cell phone, and I enjoy talking to people, and otherwise I get to be in my garden. Well, I am the gopher and the doofer also. (laughs) Sounds like a wonderful life. It is indeed. I am blessed. I thank the Lord every morning. Hmm. And can you describe your planting conditions and where you are in Virginia for those who are outside the area? Well, we're zone 7B, so we're a very moderate temperate climate. We're on the lower part of the Chesapeake Bay. We're across the river from Yorktown near Williamsburg, 60 miles from Richmond, 60 miles from Norfolk, but on the lower part of the Chesapeake Bay. Now, the growing conditions are ideal here, where we have lovely sandy, loamy soil on the edges of the bay. And I garden in a garden which has lovely sandy loam, which I mend with a lot of compost. Becky gardens a mile away, and we don't garden together. It's easier that way. She gardens a mile away on a heavy gray mottled clay with a high water table. Not ideal conditions for growing bulbs. However, You can amend to create an ideal situation, and that involves compost on top of the clay and then planting on top of the compost. That way, bulbs are assured of really good soil, but their roots can go down into that moisture-rich, heavy clay, and so it's it's a win-win situation. And I've also seen when I visited there that Becky pots up bulbs in layers in containers as well. So that helps with drainage. Well, we do that as well. Um, Every bulb in our mail order catalog gets potted on a pot of compost and overwintered under a mulch layer. Uh, Rime is what we use. We used to use just, just wood chips or leaves. And they get their vernalization, and we take them out and display them in the spring so everybody can see what they look like. But we also do a workshop called the Living Flower Arrangement Workshop where we layer five layers of bulbs in a big pot, a 12-inch or larger pot, with a color theme. It can be either red, white, and blue, pink, white, and purple, yellow, red, and orange, or all white. And we select kinds of bulbs that bloom at a similar time So you've got a nice flower arrangement impact. If you did it with sequential early mid-season and late, it would not have the focal impact. So we do them with ones that bloom at a similar time. And we do a lot of those workshops and then teach people how how to overwinter them or to force them to bloom out of their normal season. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'll have to have you come back for another episode all about forcing because that's one of my favorite hobbies to do with with bulbs is force them into early bloom and, and enjoy them in february inside before it's like my mini spring inside indeed indeed and all you got to do is fool mother nature a little mm-hmm. bit but 
give them the and we'll get into that when we do it again so i look forward to that yeah and i'll and you know don't be much of a cook like myself because you'll have plenty of room in the refrigerator <laughs> okay and we'll, we'll talk about all the different ways to go about mm -hmm. it because exactly. there are other ways other than just the refrigerator exactly all right so that's a little tease for something in the future but today's topic i'm calling specialty bulbs but other people sometimes call it minor bulbs or lesser known bulbs. And what do you think about the terms for that? Well, I think they're special in that they, some are not minor at all. The culture comes, for instance, are quite large. The bulb is the size of actually of a baseball, typically. Mm -hmm. And um, and the alien and their flowers are like giant crocuses, although not at all related to crocuses. The alliums have baseball or softball sized bulbs and some flowers as big as a beach ball. So, but um, some are smaller, but uh, I think still think they have a, a major impact, so not a minor impact. So I like to use the term special instead of minor. Yeah, and I would say, you know, not rare, but lesser known or lesser used. They're just not available maybe in your big box stores. That's right. Typically, they're mm -hmm. the things that are grown in tremendous big quantities. Some of these special ones are grown in a little bit smaller quantities and hence often a bit higher price tag on them. Mm -hmm. And it could be that uh, either they are less available in the trade some of them or that they just haven't caught on so maybe some of them will will boost their popularity in this talk indeed good we hope so mm -hmm. so let's start off uh, since we are in fall when we're recording this and talk about some of the fall specialty bulbs and you just mentioned colchicum and yes. That's also known to some as fall crocus but that's kind of a, that's a, a misnomer, misnomer. Mm -hmm. yes and also they call them meadow saffron and they have nothing to do with saffron either yeah don't so, eat don't eat the stamens or anything from colchicum that is not a good idea and this is a bulb that actually contains a a chemical uh, called colchicine it's extracted from the bulb to treat gout it's a medical chemical used in the medical industry to treat gout it's also used in the plant industry to shock plants that have two sets of chromosomes into having four sets of chromosomes, becoming tetraploid, which often is more vigorous and bigger and stronger. Often daylilies and hostas are, are, are treated with colchicine and become tetraploid. But ah. the other neat thing about it is this chemical makes culture combs absolutely critter-proof. Nothing can eat them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you did take a bite, you will regret it. We will say that. Yeah. And, and I, but animals seem to know, and and I think that uh, kids and pets just don't. Um, that there's a smell or something that gets people not to to try them. Mm -hmm. And I just love colchicum flowers because they're coming up right when everything else is seemingly dying back, and pretty much a range of whites to pinks to to pale purples and they have double and triple flowers but kind of in the shape of a crocus so that's kind of how it got that common that's name. right 
and they are multiple bloom stalks per bulb. So each bulb produces anywhere from five to 20 blooms. It's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you had referred to that softball size or baseball size that is a huge uh, root and you know storage system there to push up several flowers. So Indeed. always good to have. And then we have the actual true fall crocus and yes. those um, saffron crocus. So let's talk about those for a minute. And, and they are wonderful. They are a bit later than some of the culture comes. Uh, we do have crocus speciosus in full bloom right now. And they do tend to naturalize also. Let's just reach on that term for a minute. It's a term that's misused by most of the bulb industry. Hmm. Tip, what it means technically is a non-native plant, which crocuses are not native, but one that reseeds and spreads. So unfortunately, most of the industry uses it to mean a plant that grows well. But um, crocuses, most of these autumn crocuses do uh, reseed if conditions are are right and the little Mm -hmm. seedlings can come up. They're lovely in a yard. They come up, they have grass-like leaves. And so in the autumn, you can have sweeps of crocuses in your yard. I've got a lovely spot under some trees. They are shade tolerant. Their leaves last all winter. They are edible, but one can plant them in a carpeting ground cover like stackers, lamb's ears, or uh, liriope or something where critters are not apt to go, and they're great companions in that kind of ground cover. And that does help to keep them, keep the critters away. They do, the, the, the bulbs smell like nuts. And that does draw squirrels and voles. And rabbits do chew on the leaves. But a wonderful repellent can be applied to either the bulb or the leaf called plant skid. It's guaranteed to last for six months. And it gives them protection from the critters. And then the very special one. Mm-hmm. which a lot of people know the gourmet cooks have used saffron before. And that's the stamens, or actually the pistil of crocus sativus. And they're bright red, and when picked, finger and thumb will turn bright orange where you pick them. They're dried, and actually they're worth more than their weight in gold at one time. That's what they said. Most of the industry is in in either Spain or other parts, Greece and other parts of the uh, Near East. But um, the uh, there is an industry here down in Texas that does grow saffron crocuses, and there's one was a grower in Pennsylvania that was yeah. harvesting saffron at one time. So most people can grow them. Nice, yeah, and you know. Maybe put a little wire cage around them should your squirrels try to steal your your saffron off of there. And that is a possibility also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, too precious to let the squirrels have little orange fingertips. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) And so our next fall blooming, uh, cyclamen. And those people might be familiar with in the houseplant version, but we're talking about the tiny, tiny little cyclamen, right? Well, these are, some are even not so tiny. Ah. Cyclamen heterofolium is a pretty awesome one. 
and it's beautiful in that it's named coming from hetera, which is the scientific name for um, ivy, English ivy. They do have leaves similar to English ivy leaves, and heterifolium can get quite large. The corms keep large, getting bigger every year, and they are multiplied by seeds. And interestingly enough, this one naturalizes, but it's the ants that take this the little white eleosome, sugary eleosome, on the seed and disperse them. <clears throat> We've had them come up as far as 20 feet away from where we had a group planted. But they're great for the autumn pollen or for the autumn pollinators, mm. just as the crocuses, autumn crocuses are great. The honeybees love them, so they're both great pollinator plants. Also, the the cyclamen heterifolium is the largest of them, and there is a selected white form of it. But uh, and the leaves can be quite variable, but they're the two autumn bloomers. And then we have one that we plant in the fall, but doesn't come up until the spring. And it has round leaves, cyclamen cuum. And it does have different color forms of flowers, as does uh, cyclamen um, silicicum also. So these are wonderful ones. These are plants that are shade tolerant. However, they do grow better in full sun. They do like good drainage. So better planted, and they're excellent rock garden subjects in our climate. So they are easy, and seldom have we ever seen critters bothering them at all. So mm. we think spectacular. You can grow them in pots as well, but they do need a dry summer dormancy. Mm. Yeah, and that's where I, I find people fall down sometimes on the cyclamen is they think it, it died over the yeah. summer and then they might chuck it accidentally yeah. and so when well, you're mentioning that you know i think one of the biggest i do a fair number of a fair amount of garden coaching and the biggest problem that i encounter is mindless irrigation that actually keeps plants drowns plants with too much water at mm. the wrong time most bulbs when they go dormant, when the leaves die, when we go dormant in the evening, we get in bed and we like a dry bed. Bulbs like to sleep in a dry bed also. So important to have companion planting, something that uses available summer moisture and leaving the bulbs drier in their dormancy during the summer. Hmm, great points. Uh, no mindless irrigation on them mm -hmm. in the summer. You'll rot them for sure. Yeah. And Great drainage, a good key point. And that's why I think tucking bulbs, uh, especially around uh, tree roots that suck up the moisture, is a great place for it. And of course, not any additional irrigation, either overhead or, um, you know, with a tape or something on the ground. That's right. That's right. And excellent spot is around shallow, fibrous rooted shrubs, just as mm -hmm. you said. Mm-hmm. So our next uh, specialty bulb, the snowdrop or galanthus, we actually had in episode 43, David Culp uh, speaking about his uh, snowdrop galanthophile collection. So maybe we'll gloss over this 
pretty quickly, except for to note that you can have snowdrops for maybe six months or more in bloom. Um, wow. And it's not just a late winter thing, correct, Brent? Um, the one that's in bloom now that's unfortunately not commercially available, mm. Regina Olga, oh. uh, starts actually in some places in end of September and through the month of October. Now, I would, I think that maybe, you know, um, David is a galanthophile. You mm-hmm. know what galanthophiles are? <laughs> they, no, yeah. <laughs> they're crazy about galanthus, and um, he collects many, many cultivars. And unfortunately, they're not so many in the bulb trade. That in the bulb trade means they're produced commercially and available. We list eight different ones, and these are ones that are pretty tried and true and hardy. My favorite is. Galanthus elwesii. It's one of the larger ones. It's also one of the ones with beautiful glaucous leaves. And often we forget about the leaves of plants. And you know, the leaves are actually the 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 cake. The flowers are just the icing. So plants need to have good cake as well as icing. But uh, the Galanthus elwesii is naturalizing for us. Now, we're on the southern end of where galanthus grow really well. Um, they're better in more northerly climates, generally speaking. But uh, a newer Elwesii selection called Mount Everest is a great one for forcing, growing on pots, etc. Now, the galanthus, they're members of the amaryllis plant family. All amaryllis plant family members have alkaloids in them that are not only distasteful, but mildly poisonous. Notice this said mildly. It mm. would take a lot of bulbs to kill somebody or really hurt them. But um, critters know this, and they leave all amaryllis alone. So these are all critters, basically. So, mm. so definitely a bitter taste that you would, you know, maybe take one bite and spit out if you that's, would. That's right. Very, very acrid taste. Another favorite of mine is Galanthus novalis. Now, novalis is the most numerous one in the trade, if you do find them in the trade, but it's called Viridipix, and Viridipix has little green tips on the ends of the, um, boy, are they parent petals or sepals? I'm, I can't remember which, but it's a, it's one that's naturalized here as well for me. <laughs> Hmm. I love the more green uh, kind of lime almost into the spectrum. So that's right. really, really beautiful. And I was going to define a term that you use glaucus uh, for the foliage. And for beginning gardeners, that means like a blue green type yes. of deep, deep, deep blue green um, color to them. It's just beautiful combined in the garden. I, I think a lot of hostas you might be familiar with, with that blue green type leaf. Um, so definitely something to look forward to in your bulbs when they're not in bloom or when maybe you've picked the bloom to enjoy indoors, you could still Indeed. enjoy the foliage outside. And you mentioned that they are fragrant. Hmm. I didn't realize it until I visiting my sister in Massachusetts. She puts them in my bedroom beside the bedroom table and they have a lovely fragrance as do the crocuses. And the galanthus are also visited by pollinators hmm. here in this country. Oh, where, yes. Where most yeah. Narcissus 
hybrids are not, but uh, most of the bulbs in this catalog are visited by pollinators. Hmm. And so our next uh, is Sternbergia, or Stern. Yeah. Sometimes it's called autumn daffodil, and again, a misnomer. No relation to Narcissus, correct? Well, no, but it does, sweetheart. Oh, it, okay. it, um, it's actually, it has, uh, it is in the amaryllis plant family. So, and it had, goes under several monikers, and another is lilies of the field. It's not a lily at all, but um, it's from the Middle East, and it's wonderful autumn bloomer, looking like a, a big crocus, but having more amaryllis-like leaves. Mm-hmm. And again, this one is naturalizes and is visited by pollinators. And not far from here is a lovely old plantation called Chip Oaks. It's a, now a state park. And Sternbergia is naturalized all over the lawn there. Right plant in the right place. I have it planted in probably 20 spots but mine haven't naturalized for some reason. But it did there, and it's just lovely. But amaryllis plant family member, nobody eats it. It's September, October blooming, blooming for a fairly long period of time, particularly when the nights begin to cool. But a great one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one I love. It basically looks like a crocus on it a does. stick. That's right. If you want to describe more more than As... the daffodil look, but you know, it's got that bright yellow, and I think that's why one right. of the common names for it. And yeah, I've gotten it uh, to spread a tiny bit. I started off with oh, only five okay. bulbs, and I've maybe gotten right, go twenty well, they now. Multiply so by just... division. And sweetheart, you used mm-hmm. a term that I I disagree with. There's nothing common about hmm. plants. We have to start calling them nicknames. <laughs> We don't say people have common names, so plants can have Ah. nicknames too. Yes, definitely the nickname. Sometimes people will say folk name. That's another way to term it because it comes up, you know, from just a nickname that the people might give it without knowing the actual Latin name. And actually, that's correct. And, you know, this is an heirloom plant. It's been around for many, many years. It was brought over early on. Uh, one of the plants that's on many of the old plantations, which is also kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. An heirloom plant, we call them. Yeah, I think the first time I encountered it was at Monticello at one of the side properties in right. bloom in early, I think it must have been early October, maybe end of September. And I was like, what is that? I need it. Right, <laughs> right. Hmm. So we're going to jump way ahead um, to alliums for our next okay. specialty bulbs. And you had mentioned we can get alliums the size of a you know volleyball or the size of a small child's head. Sometimes it will say in catalogs. Indeed. And then there's the, the much smaller, tinier alliums. And of course, everyone is familiar with allium as far as eating them in the onion family. But we're talking about the ornamental onions. Indeed. And some actually, you know, are leeks, others are garlics, and others are, I think, true onions. So they do differ in that, you know, when we compare them to vegetables. Mm -hmm. I think the majority are more garlic relatives. And the greatest thing about them, because they are in the allium family, is they are deer resistant. And resistant. 
just depends on how hungry your deer are. If you do have an overpopulation of deer, which many communities have, simply we've created a lot of edge for deer to live in, uh, they will try to eat anything. But uh, they are resistant to deer and rabbits and squirrels. I've never heard of a squirrel digging them up. Um, so they are resistant. Mm. And so what are what are some of your favorite ones? Because there are so many now available. And I think Millennium is one of the ones that I'm seeing in gardens everywhere. Yes, but that's not a bulbous allium. Ah. That's a perennial allium. Mm-hmm. That's more related to a chive, I think. Oh, okay. So, and uh, there are summer bloomers, but all of them are perennial and not bulbs. Mm-hmm. So allium aflatinense purple sensation is one that's because produced in such large quantities. it's uh, And it's produced for the cut flower market. Now, most people think, oh, yuck, a garlicky smell. Do you know a drop of water, of Clorox in the water, actually cuts the allium smell? So you can use them in flower arrangements without it smelling like onions. But this one is grown in tremendous quantities. It's an early bloomer. It's long-lasting, and I like it. Soft, uh, baseball-sized flowers. And we got a softball-sized flower in the ambassador. Now, ambassador is quite a lot taller also, but um, it's wonderful, rich purple, and just very full of florets. Now, the pollinators adore alliums. And even in some places, alliums are considered invasive because they can seed about, and they're not native. Well, I think we dramatically overuse that invasive plant thing. If they become thugs and damage native plant situations, then I think we might call them invasive. But anyhow, mm-hmm. ambassador is a great one. Mm-hmm. Um, chameleon is a small one that's done really well on my rock garden. Now, with alliums, you have to remember, these plants originate typically in high mountain, dry deserts. Uh, The majority of the big ones, I think, are native to Uzbekistan, Turkestan, Kazakhstan, where they have very cold winters and hot, dry summers. And so these benefit from being dry in the summer, but also getting enough heat. There are very few alliums, if any, that tolerate shade. You know, I don't think there are many plants that are shade-loving. They're shade-tolerant plants Mm -hmm. because the leaves, of course, are solar collectors. And if they don't collect enough sunlight, they don't don't create enough photosynthesis with starches and sugars to replenish the bulbs, the batteries. So Christophiae is probably my all-time favorite. It's like lots of stars lining a planet. And those those flowers can be uh, softball size or bigger. And it tends to be one of the better ones in our hot, humid summers here. But I like to plant my alliums amongst perennials that are strong growing or ornamental grasses, which use a lot of their own, use a lot of the available moisture, but keep the alliums on the drier side. Now, an all-time favorite is is one called Schubertii. Not so tall, only about a foot tall, but literally the size of a basketball uh, when it blooms. But the ray florets, it's kind of like a 
spaceship, a satellite or something with all these little things poking out little mm-hmm. star florets. It's a, it's a love and it's done well for us. Becky has a berm in her garden and she's got a lot of ornamental grasses and the alliums are coming back fairly well there year after year. So, um, and, oh, we do have triquetrum in the catalog. This is the one that's um, native to Europe. It has a triangular stem and bell-like flowers that hang down. And that one is the shade, more shade tolerant. Now, when I was in New Zealand, this one is like a weed there. It's, they, it's, it's everywhere, just in the, in the landscape. But um, hmm. alliums are great. And they are fun. And your season of bloom is typically from middle of April up until June. And um, quite a few different fun ones. Yeah. And when you say season of bloom, that's when it has the full color on it. That bright purple or pink or white or whichever color for the variety. But dried and left in the garden, still beautiful. Especially that shepherd eye. It's, you know, it looks like a Sputnik, you know, little it space does. thing. And, and, you know, the little trick, you just take a piece of stiff wire to the dried, you pull it out and stick it up in the stem and then you can put it back. But also the gals in our warehouse who take care of, the gals and guys who take care of Becky's garden, mm-hmm. they like to spray paint them in different colors. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you. Reaction. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I've done that a few times, either using floral spray or, or even regular spray paint, and and had it last through the season. And of course, people will throw some glitter on them yeah. when they're dried and, and put yeah. them for Christmas decorations on the mantle because they do dry so well. Now, alliums do not force. We've been mm-hmm. people have been trying it for many years for the Philadelphia Flower Show and others. But alliums, you can't trick them uh, by creating a vernalization, early vernalization, which most bulbs need. That time period, they need to go through a cold temperature at 35, 40 degrees or below in order to trigger them to bloom. And alliums just don't do that. But there is one that's fun for growing on pots called Carativiense. Carativiense blooms just right above very broad, again, glaucous blue-green leaves. The blue-green leaves are pretty, and it's a great pot plant. So, And then there's a larger form of it called Neviscanum. Uh, the Carativiense has kind of whitish-pink flowers, about the size of a, of a baseball sometimes. And then Neviscanum has bigger pink ones, but they're both kind of fun on containers. Mm. And I saw one in your catalog called Silver Spring, and I'm going to have to order that just because that's where I live. Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Right. Oh, good deal. We did it just for you. Yeah, it's always fun. uh, Don't know who named that. Mm. It's it's a beautiful one because the, the pistil on the flower, which will be, become the ovary uh, and actually i guess it's an ovary the pistil is very small is actually dark purple and the flower is kind of soft pink so that that contrast is really lovely mm-hmm. kind of has a you know pin cushion type look very pretty yeah yeah mm-hmm. so let's jump on to the anemones and we're oh, not talking okay. about japanese anemone but anemone blanda and the coronaria yes indeed and these are a favorite. Now, 
some bulbs are a lot easier than others. These, the right plant in the right place is really makes a difference. Mm-hmm. The anemone blanda, probably easier than the anemone coronaria. The blandas are those shoes and socks. I like to call little bulbs shoes and socks or carpeting bulbs. Because these anemone blandas will create, the flower stem is only two, if sometimes three inches. You know, flowers tend to stretch in the shade. These are somewhat shade tolerant because they get most of their growth before the leaves come on the trees. But um, these make a wonderful carpet. And you plant about 10 bulbs per square foot with these little babies. Beautiful, ferny foliage. The pollinators adore them. So you've got a lot of honeybees and our native bees on them in the early spring when many of our native plants are not yet uh, available to them. So wonderful little carpeting bulb come in a, a sort of rosy pink, white, and blue, and then a mixture of those. And I like to combine them with different flower forms like the wonderful little Ipion. I don't know if we're going to talk about that. A South American native that is a great bulb flower, highly critter resistant. And, hmm. and, uh, but anemone blanda, plant around your bigger trees and shrubs and perennials because you have a carpeting effect with them, which is a lot of fun. The bigger uh, and anemones are not true bulbs. You know, we call bulbs technically geophytes. We call them, we call all things that are bulbs, corms, tubers, rhizomes, and tuberous roots. We call them all loosely bulbs. Mm. But uh, the anemones are are rhizomes. And interesting, they don't have a pointy end up to plant them. So when you go to plant them, lay them flat on the soil and then tip up just like you put dishes in a dishwasher you don't plant them, put them in flat. You tip them up on edge to plant them. And that's the way you plant your anemones. And that way, for sure, roots go down and tops come up. You won't put them upside down. Great but, advice because, yeah, those little discs, it is hard to tell. They are. They they don't have roots coming out that you can see or where they were. So no pointy end up. Um, the anemone coronaria, the florist's anemone. Typically, this is what their major use is, and actually, eighty something like seventy-five or eighty percent of the bulbs grown in the Netherlands are either grown for cut flowers or for pot plants. We gardeners are only using twenty twenty-five percent, but anemone carnaria is a great one. Uh, these are larger; they can grow up to a foot tall. Um, they do need very good drainage. If you're above Zone seven, you want to plant them in the spring. They are available then as well. Uh, In our climate, we can plant them in the autumn. It's beneficial to soak them before you plant them. Uh, They are coated with a wax, and you want them to begin to hydrate before you plant them. And remember, plant them on edge. Plant them in your best drained site and in full sun. Becky in Becky's garden there's one site where they come back year after year, but it's about a foot of compost. So it's well drained, it's on top of the clay, it's facing east, often the microclimate that you put things in. There is protection 
from the north. There is a, a hedge of plants from the north, so they're protected a bit. But um, they are wonderful. They're, they're great for red, white, and blue displays. If you're feeling patriotic, and I, we feel so blessed to live in this wonderful country of ours, they come in both double forms with multiple petaloids or single forms with, with six petals on each flower. Uh, they're, they're absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. And they look so fragile sometimes, you know, almost poppy-like fragile. Yeah, and they are like poppy. They look mm-hmm. a little like poppies. Exactly. And the hint with these is don't cut. Like you don't cut your daffodils. You pick them. You run your finger down the stem, pull up and snap, and they pull away from the, the rhizome. So you get a much better stem if you pick them rather than cut them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you're going to run it all the way down to the ground. That's when, correct. When you put your finger in it, you're just gonna, not going to snap off the top of it. That's right. Hmm. So let's move on to arum. And I almost feel like this is a bulb we do plant more for the foliage than for the flower. Indeed. And, um, and unfortunately, I've noticed the park service is calling this an invasive plant. And I, I'm afraid we've gone overboard with some things. Aromatallicum has leaves emerging in October and November. They're there all winter. The leaves are the size of my hand, which is a relatively large. The dark green with white stripes on the veins. The leaves are very attractive, great for flower arranging. I know most guys don't arrange flowers, but I do. And I actually take flowers anytime we're invited to dinner and we get repeat invitations right often. But uh, the leaves in the fall, all winter, it freezes hard. They'll go down. You think, oh, poor plant. But then you get a warm day and they pop right back up again. Um, They do have a spathe-like flower. It's a greenish, chartreuse greenish flower. The pollinators do adore them, so they utilize them. And then they form clusters of red fruits somewhat like Jack in the Pulpit, if you're familiar with it. They're in the same plant family, and they're critter-proof to be also. But um, it's the red fruits that cause them the problem of being called invasive because the mockingbirds and other fruit-loving birds enjoy those fruits. When the seeds go through the digestive tracts, they poop them out, and they do sometimes come up where you don't want them. So If you don't want them to naturalize, do cut off the fruits before the birds get them. Mm -hmm. And I don't even get them to that stage. Somebody, I don't even know if it's a squirrel, who somebody is just eating them green. They're just devouring them. All right. So it's a little crazy. But let's jump to Kamasia because I'm finding that is a bulb that is becoming more popular now. I don't know if your sales and orders are reflecting that, but more varieties available and more use in the garden. We, we do. We love this. And, you know, they're Native American. They're not many bulbs that are Native American. Uh, it's kind of fun. Now, mostly native to Idaho, Oregon, and Washington, high meadows, wet meadows, where they bloom in the spring. And that's where that wonderful woman named Sacagawea, we call her, but out there they called her Sakakawea, who helped 
Lewis and Clark on their journey as they got snowed into the, I can't remember which mountain range. She went out and they'd eaten their horses. They were stranded. They were in dire straits. She went out and dug Kamasha bulbs, roasted them because they're toxic or they have a toxicity if you don't roast them. But uh, she dug the bulbs, roasted them, and kept them from starving. They come in uh, from very dark blue to a range to soft blue to almost purple, uh, white, pure white. And then there is a pink one now. Now, The pink one's grown by one grower. It's not very pink, uh, but in some situations, it's more pink than in others. So you've got to, you know, I I kill plants a few times. Now, I don't kill kamashias, but I, I kill a plant. Uh, I never kill it twice in the same spot. But if it's not growing as well, I try to find a new spot for it. And often you get better color. Um, I think the color in the pink is, is not as stable. So a little more afternoon shade would be good for that one. They are moisture tolerant, so they will grow in wet soils also. It is better. Rain garden would be an ideal place to plant them. A garden that's wet in wet seasons, but then dries out in the summer. But uh, they are marvelous, and they're May blooming. So like the alliums, much later blooming. And there are some taller ones that I have growing that um, have naturalized about a bit, which are very nice. Yeah. Oh, neat. And I... the. Pollinators adore them. The honeybees in particular love them. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And so let's uh, finish this episode with what I'm going to call the E's and F's. <laughs> That's, we'll talk about Aranthus through Fritillaria. Uh, so maybe let's start with Aranthus. Okay. Well, you're talking about a couple of bulbs that are not the easiest, but right plant in the right situation. The Aranthus naturalize quite freely. They're buttercup relatives. Nobody eats them. The pollinators that love them, they do set seeds, and there's some wonderful collections of them in some of our public gardens and in private gardens. It's a shade-tolerant plant, one of the very earliest to bloom, and if you want them, when you get the bulbs, they again, like anemones, it's a tuber, and you want to, or a rhizome, I think, and you want, do want to soak them overnight to, to rehydrate them. And, and then when the seed pods are ready to pop, collect them and scratch the seed in where you want them. Really, they, you know, we'd love to sell you bulbs, but the easiest way to get them is by seed. So great little, one of the very earliest spring ephemerals. Hmm. Yeah, and so pretty uh, with that little crown collar yes. on them, definitely. And then, I maybe I'm saying it correctly. I hope I'm Aramurus. That great. That's how I mm-hmm. say it too. Do you know if if uh, if I I mispronounce a word, surely somebody corrects me, and I look at them a little critically and think, do they know more than mm-hmm. I do? And if if I think they do, I I say it the way they say it. <laughs> I do get corrected frequently. Aramiris is wonderful. Nickname, 
Desert Candle, Foxtail Lily, uh, Desert Candle. They're coming, again, high mountain deserts. They need extremely good drainage, particularly in their summer dormancy. Water in the winter and, and, and early spring is fine for all of these spring flowering bulbs. It's just those that are moisture sensitive in their dormancy need to stray dry in the summer. This one is amazing. The pollinators adore it. It can have up to a thousand florets on a stem. Some of these grow to six feet tall. They have a rosette of leaves in the spring that's somewhat like the alliums. They kind of get a little ratty in the spring. So often it's better if you have these interplanted with ornamental grasses and perennials. And Becky's best bet with these is on a berm. And then out in our cut flower field, they're high-priced cut flowers on the cut flower market. Now, we don't ship bulbs anymore. I mean, flowers to the commercial market. She does send out boxes of flowers. And if you order a box of flowers from May Delivery, you're up to get Aramuris in it. But uh, they, they're coming back. But we raise thing, we grow things in raised beds, and we do not irrigate here. We simply add more compost every year to our soil. And, and that holds enough moisture that we don't need to irrigate. But um, typically a range of pink, yellow, orange, and white. And not the easiest. You know, try them in different spots. But find... And they are, want full sunlight. They do not tolerate shade. Yeah, I will say the most glorious displays I've seen of them were at the Denver Botanic Garden. A couple. Oh, an ideal yes. spot for many and, bulbs. And that so. kind of told me, hmm, maybe that's why it doesn't do so well for me here. <laughs> Love, yep, loves yep, the desert, yep. and, you know, and the high mountains. And obviously they had it even amongst rocks and on up on a berm, even there in their climate. Well, Paniotti created that rock garden, and it's amazing. And Mike Bone, the the stepped garden, and these are the plants that would grow well mm-hmm. there. So yeah, and then another one that I'm th- I hope I don't mutilate erythronium. Okay, and I think we stopped carrying erythronium this year because we had so much problem with the bulbs don't store well. Mm. Um, there are a number of them that are in the specialty markets, but they nickname dog tooth violet because the bulb looks like a dog tooth. Uh, trout lily, um, they they bloom at the time that you're fishing for trout. Apparently, the glacier lily because they bloom out in the Rockies. They're native to the U.S. and native to Japan, and then hybrids are in between. But glacier lilies because they are or as the glaciers begin to melt up the mountain, they pop out and bloom. But uh, neat bulbs, and we wish we had better success with them. It's a, it is a woodland plant. We have our native Erythronium americanum. Um, interestingly, it grows in wet bottoms here, but they have attractive leaves and uh pagoda was the one that we were carrying we were also carrying uh a native one that was white and the name is my floppy disk just isn't falling right now mm, i think it's white beauty yeah white beauty um, yeah good thank you 
We were carrying those, but we were encountering too many problems. Unfortunately, many of the bulbs from Holland did not allowed USGA Department of Agriculture inspects all the bulbs, does not allow any soil to be on the bulb. And even though the soil is pure sand and compost where they're grown, uh, if it has any soil, so they are required to wash them. And washing a bulb is a real no-no. When you dig your bulbs, never wash it. You'll bruise the bulbs and it's then much more susceptible to catching a fungus. So never wash your bulbs here. We don't have to worry about a little soil on them. But um, so erythroniums, those two are the ones we carried and they're lovely. They're a woodland bulb. And um, so. Yeah, Yeah, just too bad. But yeah, I think that's something that you might need to source from a a local native plant nursery or somewhere. And our erythroniums come, I mean, our erythroniums come from actually a cut flower grower in Idaho now. Hmm. So they don't have to be washed. They don't like being washed either. So they don't need to be washed if they ship to us from Idaho. So they're much better. Good good to hear. And so we're going to end on fritillarias, which is not a small family of specialty bulbs, but we can talk about some of the dwarf and the, and the large ones and maybe some tricks for getting those to grow. Yeah. One of the most difficult of all the bulbs, unfortunately. I have not seen many gardens have been to most of the public gardens in the country and i've not seen fritillarias naturalized but in one site and they the fritillaria meliagris is a beautiful guinea hen flower the checkered lily they call them they are in the lily family um they give off a somewhat skunky odor, which is a bit of a deterrent to critters. But um, this one is difficult. It's, I've only seen it in one spot in a wet meadow where it had naturalized. And I think that was Old Westbury, Plenta- Old Westbury Gardens out on Long Island. Um, it was lovely. We sell a lot of them, so somebody may have success with them. The bulbs bruise easily. Uh, We lose a lot in storage. We go through all of our bulbs before we ship them because we want to send you good sound bulbs. But um, this is a difficult one for us. Politiflora is a little bit better. It's bigger. And um, I've had it come back a year or two in my garden. And Ulva vulpis is pretty good as long as it's summer dry. Now, the best one... Is no longer in the bulb trade. It was called Verticillata. It's naturalized all over my garden, but it's not available. The larger fritillarias are giants. They grow three to three feet tall or more. They have giant flowers, um, and they're all bell-like hanging. And the interesting thing and fun thing is. Um, each one, each inside of each uh, flower, they have drops of nectar. You can stick your finger up in and get that nectar, and kids love to, you know, see that. And the the pollinators love them. It's just they don't make it through our hot, wet summers here. We do sell several thousand of them, but um, and I'm not sure 
again, Denver it may be a better spot for them <laughs> than here. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Fritillary of Persica, on the other hand, does pretty well here. It's those lovely plum purple flowers, bell-shaped flowers on a stalk, and glaucus, again, blue-gray leaves that are lovely. And we have had that one uh, come back for a number of years, and then there's selections, color forms of it. So, not the easiest bulb in the world. Now, they, lots of opinions. The big bulb has a funny, where the stem came out, leaves a hollow, and it said, well, you should never plant the bulb exactly upright because it'll collect water in that hollow and rent rot it. But I don't know. We still haven't had them come back well year after year here. Hmm. Well, good to know that there are bulbs that are a challenge even for Brent Heath. so gives us all hope and thank you for sharing those great tips and some of your favorites amongst those selections and so how would listeners get in contact uh with you or brent and becky bulbs well they would if they wanted to call they would call toll free 877-661-2852 that's 877-661-2852. Or they would, um, our email address is, oh, here it is, www.brent, B-R-E-N-T, and A-N-D, Becky's, B-E-C-K-Y-S, B-U-L-B-S dot com. So www brent and becky's bulbs.com mm-hmm. and i'll be including that link in the show notes so everybody can click on that but mm-hmm. and the key of course is that it's plural bulbs plural yes mm-hmm. and becky's also Correct. becky's possessive but becky's without bulbs. the possession mark because that won't work on a website <laughs> okay but just, it does have but, the s behind but it does becky. have the s yes marvelous yes. and for those who want to visit in person um are you open year-round or just seasonally we're open except mm-hmm. the month of january and we are we close before christmas but the shop you have to walk the gauntlet mm-hmm. to get to the garden uh, you've got to walk through the gift shop denise's gift shop and it's open Monday through Saturday from 9 until 4 every day. We do go to church on Sundays, so we're not open on Sundays. Hmm. Well, thank you so much, Brent, for sharing your passion for bulbs and your vast knowledge. And any final tips for those looking for specialty bulbs? All right. Well, one, just one more thing, if I may. Mm-hmm. We do lectures and seminars and workshops here so check the website for that and we if you sign up to be on our our contact list we only contact you when we have some specials on bulbs if we discover we have a bit more than uh, we've been selling we will let you know their sales and then we'll let you know when their events here in the garden But our bulbs are so special because you can have something in our region 
most of us can have something in bloom every month of the year. And the big bang is, of course, March and April when most of the spring flowering bulbs are in bloom. But um, it's stretched right on into the summer. We have a whole group of summer flowering bulbs that are wonderful. And bulbs, remember, are ideal companions with perennials, annuals, ground covers, trees, shrubs, and vegetables, foodscaping. <laughs> I, I plant a lot of lettuce because beautiful lettuce leaves with spring flowering bulbs is awesome. So plant a lot of bulbs and harvest a lot of smiles. Share your bulbs, plant them in your front yard and pick your flowers and share them with other people. If more people planted bulbs, someday I believe we could have world peace. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Brent. Thank you, Kathy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Garlic Plant Profile Garlic is an edible member of the onion family and one of the easiest plants to grow. Its region of origin is unclear, but it has been grown in Europe and Mediterranean for thousands of years. Hardneck garlic types, Allium sativum, variety Ophius garodin, do best in the Mid-Atlantic, where there's a real winter and distinct four seasons. Purple Stripe, German White, and Music are some reliable varieties. Around the end of October, plant your seed garlic in well-draining soil in full sun. Insert the cloves, root side down, pointy side up, about six inches apart on center, bearing the tips about two inches down. Green shoots will come up in a few weeks. Mulch around them with straw. Keep the bed weed-free so the garlic can develop a healthy root system. Hardneck garlic will form curling scapes by mid-May. Cut them off and use in recipes as you would scallions or garlic itself. This will direct the plant's energy into making a larger bulb rather than flowering and forming seeds. The bulbs are usually ready to harvest by the end of June when most of the lower leaves have browned. The upper ones can still look green. Be careful when harvesting garlic as those bulb heads are more delicate than they seem. Choose an overcast day when the soil is dry Loosen the soil with a digging fork, inserting it well away from the heads. Then lift them out gently and shake off any excess soil. Let the whole plants dry in a single layer out of the sun, where it's warm, not too hot. When the outer skin turns papery after a couple weeks of curing, brush off as much dirt as possible and clip off the shaggy roots. The ideal temperature for storing garlic is between 55 and 70 degrees Fahrenheit with moderate humidity and good air circulation. In other words, not in plastic bags and out of direct sunlight. Garlic, you can grow that.
what's new in the garden this week? Well, I rounded the corner on my gazebo to see that my Nippon Daisy, also known as a Montauk Daisy, is in full bloom. I love to see that in fall, and we've been having some pretty mild November weather. Over at the community garden plot, we've been harvesting our round black Spanish radish and planting the German white garlic. The lettuce is almost ready for harvesting as well, and we are awaiting our kale, Swiss chard, and peas, along with some broccoli. In the local gardening world, a fun event you might want to participate in is the third annual pumpkin smash at the Mount Pleasant Compost Group, Lamont Street and Mount Pleasant Street Northwest in Washington, D.C. Uh, you bring your pumpkins and they will collect the pieces to compost them and that is on November 5th, November 12th, and November 19th. And you can find out more about that at their Instagram page, at Mount Pleasant Compost. Other local gardening events include the Potomac Rose Society's online talk on Sunday, November 20th at 2 p.m. entitled Adorn Your Holidays with Roses on a Budget. That is free and open to anybody to register for, and you can do so at potomacrose.org. Another online event you can participate in for free and sign up online is the Maryland Native Plant Society's Next Talk, and you can register for that at mdflora.org. That takes place November 29th at 7 p.m., and that is Biological Control of Invasive Weeds, Exploiting Emerging and Foreign Plant Pathogens for Invasive Weed Management. So that sounds like a fascinating talk. And a little preview of the holidays. Longwood is featuring the art of Christmas in Longwood celebrating botanical splendor starting November 18th through January 8th. You'll want to go online and order your tickets in advance before you go up to visit, and you can do so at longwoodgardens.org. And here in Washington, D.C., Tudor Place is announcing their wreath workshops. They are taking place December 10th, December 18th, in the morning and the early afternoon. And you'll want to go to tutorplace.org to register for those. They fill up quickly. Happy gardening! In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org.
Well, good day, everybody. It's fall uh, in the garden in most places when I'm recording this. And one of the fall plants that I've seemed to come across, mainly on the roadside, although nurseries are doing them, is this plant called Joe Pie Weed. Well, many, many botanical names bear a person's name. Botanical name of Jeffersonia, Achillea, Louisia, to name but a few. But there really are very, very few common names that are named after people. So the question comes up, and it does all the time, was there really someone called Joe Pye? And was there a plant really named after him? Well, it turns out there was and there is. Joseph Pye was a Mohegan Indian and herbalist who lived in the late 1700s near Stockbridge, Massachusetts. One of the herbs that Joseph carried with him when he visited towns, of which, of course, Of the herbs he had, 99.9% probably did not work. But one of them was a plant that he'd gathered called Eupatorium purpureum. It was plentiful in that area, and he recommended for the treatment of fevers and even typhoid fever. Uh, The plant was mentioned a number of times in the 1700s. Its first uh, probably acceptance as a name was by a Mohegan writer. Samson Oakham, who in July 1787 went to Joseph Pye. His native people's name is Shaku Thotquat and had a very agreeable conversation with him. But Joseph's plant induced sweating, which is useful in the treatment of a number of ailments. And the plant was written about more and more. And by 1822, uh, a fellow, uh, a writer by the name of Amos Eaton, uh, said he ascribed the recovery of Williams College president. His name was Zephyrana Swift Moore, and he was the second president of that lovely institution. And according to him, he ascribed his recovery from a very alarming fever to the liberal and continued use of a tea made with these plants. So yes, there was a person as Joe Pye. Uh, it, it, plant was first called Joe Pye's Weed, and uh, it stays today as Joe Pye Weed. There are a number of really fine accounts of Joseph's interaction with this plant, and I can tell you where to look at these as we finish this story up. Oh, and by the way, Eupatorium has officially been changed to Eutrochium, and Joe Pye Weed is now Eutrochium purpureum. Anyway, this is the last word on Joseph Pye. And if you'd like more last words on (laughs) how plants get their common names, really fascinating. Um, You can get the book, my book, of course, of Naked Ladies and Forget-Me-Nots, the stories behind the common names of some of our favorite plants. If you wish to purchase a book, you can do it on my website, alanarmitage.net, and my spell, Alan, the correct way, A-L-L-A-N, and just go to the bookstore. Uh, and uh, see what happens. I think you'll enjoy it. Anyway, Alan Armitage, the last word on Joe Pyreed. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to 
anchor.fm slash GardenDC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to WashingtonGardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.